Y'all, uh, y'all, y'all awake? Stay up late last night? A little bit? All right. Well, good. Though, I'll, I'll come in and check in on you after a little while. Make sure everybody's, maybe everybody's with me. Good. Yep. Ah, there we go. Excellent. <clears throat> well, hope you're not too tired. Hope you're ready to learn to listen to dive into scripture. But first, I want to read um, an interesting article that I read recently from Heartlight Magazine. The article was titled "Stairway to the Moon." I'm going to read some of it to you. I think you're going to find some of it fascinating, as well as it's going to apply to our scripture today in Genesis 28. So our author, Elizabeth Price, she writes, I'm told that there is a place on the western Australian coast where where the full moon rising over the mudflats causes an optical illusion. From March to October each year, on three successive nights in each month, The full moon rising over the mudflats creates the illusion of a stairway reaching to the moon. It sounds like a fairy tale, and I would love to see it. I would want to walk up to that stairway into a new experience and be a part of the magic. Just imagine walking to the moon on a beautiful staircase. Well, once upon a time, a young man saw something similar. He was running away from home. His father was dying. His brother was angry with him, so angry that the young man feared for his life. So off he went one night, alone, vulnerable, and weary from fleeing. There he put a stone under his head for a pillow and then fell asleep. He dreamed that he saw a stairway leading from the ground right up to heaven, and there were angels walking up and down it. And then at the bottom, God stood beside him. God introduced himself as the God of Abraham and the God of his father Isaac. God said to him, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Jacob, and your descendants, and I shall be with you to protect you wherever you go. The young man knew he would never be alone, and there was a stairway to heaven before him, and before he even put a foot on it, he knew the Lord was walking it with him. Our author Price goes on to say, I hope somebody has told you about the stairway that goes up past the moon right to heaven. For it belongs to everyone who is called to walk with the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer fast. Lord, we thank you for your text, Father. We thank you for Genesis 28. Father, you are faithful to us when we are disobedient. Father, and you are with us always. Even though we may abandon others sometimes, Father, you would never abandon us. For you are faithful to us and you are with us always. You are a good and holy God. Father, we praise you and worship you this morning. Father, allow us to take in your good word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as Dave said, we are back in Genesis. We took a break for Advent and Christmas, but now we're back diving into the sinful lives of uh, the patriarchs. But we're also, not just that, we're also witnessing God's relentless grace and faithfulness to them. But before we jump into the text, it's been a, li- been a while since we've uh, been back in Genesis. I thought it might be helpful for us to take a quick review of where we've been, where we were, and where we also left off at Genesis 27. So, early in the fall, we began looking at the life of Abraham. And as we saw in Genesis, Abraham was no saint. He grew up in a pagan family, had many flaws, but even still, God was gracious to him, revealing himself to him and giving Abraham great promises in Genesis 12. And despite Abraham's lack of faith at times, 
God remained faithful to him the whole time. He gave him this promised son at the ripe old age of 100. And that son's name was Isaac. And after reading Genesis 26, it's easy for us to see that Isaac was also a chip off the old block. For he committed the same sins as his father, Abraham. Well, what was the family sin that you ask? Well, he deceived King Abimelech about his relationship with his wife, Rebecca. Isaac wrongfully identified his wife as his sister, and they traveled through the king's land. Like Abraham, Isaac basically offered up Rebekah to the king in hopes that he would not be killed because the king took fancy to his wife, and so he passed her off as his sister so that he wouldn't get killed. But despite Isaac's lack of faith for God to protect him and his wife, God continued to be faithful to Isaac. He returned his wife to him untouched. And God's blessings and promises remained with Isaac as they were passed down from Abraham. And the promises of many descendants and of the promised land were continued to be given to Isaac. And then we're going to see now to Jacob. God was good even when we weren't, even when Abraham wasn't, when Isaac wasn't, even when Jacob wasn't. God was still faithful. And later we witnessed that God blessed Isaac and Rebekah with two sons, Jacob and Esau. At the boy's birth, Rebekah was given the prophecy that the older, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. Well, in Genesis 27, it seems that Isaac either had a really bad case of dementia or he's just being plain disobedient. And from the last sermon in Genesis 27, we know his latter, uh, Isaac was just being plain disobedient, unfortunately. That's just how it was. So in Genesis 27, Isaac was poised to bless Esau with his inheritance. But in a turn of events, Rebekah and Jacob deceived Isaac into thinking that Jacob was really Esau. Isaac was old and had bad eyesight. Therefore, it was easy to take advantage of him, to dupe him. And as chapter 27 tells us, though, Isaac blessed Jacob instead of Esau. But that was actually the right thing to do because God said, The older son, Esau, will serve the younger. So the right thing happened despite the sin. Well, as you can imagine, if you lost all your inheritance and you're supposed to get it, you're probably going to be pretty angry. It's a a good assumption. Well, Esau was. He was furiously, murderously, incredibly furious and angry. There we go. Tongue twister. Why? Because he lost his birthright, one, and his blessing, two, to Jacob. And in return, Esau received almost an anti-blessing, almost like a cursing from Isaac. The only thoughts that comforted Esau were the thoughts of killing and murdering his own flesh and blood, his brother. That was it. He's a sick fellow. He was pretty open about his feelings and plans. We're going to see, he's going he's to talk about it a little bit later on. But because Jacob was in danger, <clears throat> Rebekah told Jacob that he needed to flee to her brother Laban, who lived in Haran. And it was in the household of Laban where Jacob would find a wife pleasing to his parents and where he would be free from his brother's revenge. And this is where we left off in Genesis 27. That's where we were. So that's bringing us up to date. And I know that's a quick review of about 16 chapters, but I hope there's some helpful things in there to bring us back up to speed because that's going to be helpful for us to keep in the back of our minds as we come into Genesis 28 this morning. So, This morning, we're diving into Genesis 28, verses 1 through 22. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. Um, Open them to Genesis 28. And if you have your bulletins, the text is provided there for you, if you don't have one with you. 
Not a problem. And what we're going to do this morning, I'm just going to lay it out for you. We're going to break our scripture up into two sections. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. That's going to correspond with the first sermon point. And we're going to read verses then 10 through 22. It's going to correspond with our second sermon point. So let's get started. Our first section that we're going to be looking at is titled, God is Faithful. God is Faithful. Let's read the verses. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to the house of Aram, to the house of Bethul, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful, and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. He went to Potanarim, to Laban, the son of Bethul, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. And now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Potanarim to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him. He said, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Potanarim. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father... Esau then went to Ishmael, took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. For those of you who've, who've been here, who've heard some of the other sermons in Genesis, did anything stick out to you? Did you notice anything kind of strange? You know, Isaac has been very pro-Esau. We've seen that Genesis 26 to 7, very pro-Esau. But now, in rare form, Isaac now seems to be pro-Jacob. It seems that Isaac is taking Rebekah's suggestion of sending Jacob to her brother to find a wife, and he's now making it his own idea. And notice what comes next in verse 2. Isaac blesses Jacob before he sets off on his 550-mile journey. The real reason Jacob is leaving and fleeing, the real reason that Jacob has to depart for Haran is being completely ignored. It's being swept under the rug here. That's what's out of place. Remember in Genesis 27, Esau made it crystal clear. He says, I'm going to kill my brother. And that was the only thing that kept him feeling sane, that made him feel good. I will read to you Genesis 27, verses 41. It says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing of his father had given him. He said to himself, Esau did, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Esau's thoughts about killing his brother were the only thing that comforted him. That's it, killing his brother. That to me would be a very difficult thing to sweep under the rug to forget, or to simply suppress. That seems to be kind of the case here. Isn't it ironic that Rebecca and Isaac are telling Jacob to go to Laban only so he can get a wife, when the main reason Jacob is fleeing for his life is because he stole his brother's birthright and his inheritance. Isaac and Rebecca are clearly a piece of work here. Uh, But at least Jacob is on a better track. That is, not being slaughtered by his brother and hopefully finding a wife some 500 miles away. Um, 
So as you've seen in Genesis 27 and now in Genesis 28, for Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, taking matters into their own hands did not work out for them very well. That's pretty plain to see that. For Isaac's favorite son gets nothing. He gets no inheritance. And his favorite son, Esau, is breathing murderous threats against his own flesh and blood, against his brother. And Rebecca's favorite son now has to be sent away. She may never see him again. She doesn't know. He has to be sent away. This is a lose-lose scenario for them. Taking matters in their own hands doesn't work. We're seeing this here. Or is this a lose-lose scenario? We're going to find out. Despite all the conniving, the scheming, the disobedience, and lying, God remains faithful to his people and his promises of creating a people for himself and giving those people land. God is faithful even when we aren't. The covenant promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis 12 are now being bestowed upon Jacob as he leaves Beersheba. Even though Isaac has been a very flawed man thus far, it seems that in a glimmer of obedience, he rightfully acknowledges Jacob as a third patriarch and successor, and he blesses him as so. This is what Isaac says in verses 3 and 4. God Almighty, bless you, make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. This here is a language of covenantal blessing that's being bestowed upon Jacob. The previous patriarch in the family, Isaac, now recognizes his son Jacob, not Esau, as the next patriarch. Isaac is pronouncing the covenantal blessing on Jacob, but it's going to be the Lord who confirms it for him. And soon we're going to see that in our passage because the Lord is going to be faithful to Jacob too. For he will establish his covenant promises with Jacob. And as scripture tells us, Jacob will have 12 sons from which the 12 tribes of Israel will come. Now, I don't want to go too far and tell you the rest of the story for the sermons that are going to come. But the main part that we're seeing here unfold in our text is God is faithful. He continues to bless Abraham's descendants even as they lie, cheat, steal, scheme, and deceive, God is faithful to his word, even when we aren't, even when they weren't. And my fellow sinners, that's good news for each of us, including myself. As the story begins in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where God first blessed Abraham and gave him promises, we now see the story has progressed, that the promises given to Abraham are now continually unfolding throughout Abraham's lineage. First to his son Isaac, now to Jacob. God is good and is faithful. Let me tell you, his plans cannot be altered. His plans cannot be altered, even if we try, even if we sin and try, like Isaac did, trying to bless Esau. It didn't happen. It didn't work. God's plans always come true. But now, Isaac sends Jacob on his way to Laban, Rebecca's brother, in hope of finding a wife. Esau, after seeing all of this, he decides he must also take another wife. And if you're counting, this is wife number three. And he's obviously going in hope that he will find a wife to please his father. That seems to be what's going on here. Well, why does Esau think that going to Ishmael to find another wife will please Isaac? 
Why does he think this? Well, because in verse 6, Isaac told Jacob not to take a Canaanite wife, but to take a wife from the family line. Esau tries to do the same thing by marrying within the family. For he goes to Ishmael, his uncle, to find another wife. Now, most commentators think that Esau saw Ishmael's daughters as being the kind of a family that Isaac was talking about that would be favorable. Esau must have been thinking that maybe this third wife would persuade his father into giving a blessing. It's a logical thought. It's a good try. Um, you know, most commentators, they say that he did this not out of revenge, actually, but that he did it trying to win his father's favor. But, you know, he took matters in his own hands. And as you're going to see, it doesn't get him favor. Um, either way, whether Esau married Mahalath, his cousin, to please Isaac or spite him, it did not gain him the added favor that he sought, nor did it gain him a blessing from his father that he desired. This whole narrative of the early life of Jacob, and in particular this interaction that we're talking about now with Esau, just goes to say that self-reliance does not bring godly favor or prosperity. And I know that taking matters into our own hands, thinking that we are in control or that we have to be self-reliant is a character trait that's seamlessly woven in the American way of doing things. It truly is. But let me tell you, it's not the way the Lord does things. It's not the way he works. It's not what he wants. Look what happened to Jacob when he took matters into his own hands. He had to be sent away under the guise of finding a wife. But in reality, he's fleeing from his brother's wrath. His brother wants to kill him. It was Jacob's erroneous ideas about being self-sufficient and self-reliant that caused him to deceive his father in order to get his blessing. You know, if Jacob had probably just trusted God and God's goodness and faithfulness to fulfill his promises and to fulfill his prophecies, he probably wouldn't have had the flea for his life. But that's not what happened here. What Jacob did was very American and is very human took matters into his own hands. With the aid of his mother, Rebecca, Jacob took matters in his own hands and forcibly took what was rightfully his, the blessing from Isaac. And he did this rather than trusting the Lord to provide it for him. That's, that's what he did. He didn't trust the Lord. He took it for himself, taking matters in his own hands, thinking he could control the situation. Let me ask you, though, does that sound familiar to you in your life? I know it does for mine. If I take a hard and deep look, I know that that's absolutely true for me. Um, and if you think it's not, you're lying to yourself. It's as plain as that. You know, my freshman year of college, I took matters in my own hands. I disregarded godly counsel. And let's just say that it did not end up very well for me, as you'll hear. In January 2009, my first year of college, I had a lung collapse. And that required immediate surgery. I was hospitalized for a week, went home to recuperate for another week, then returned to campus, obviously tired and weak. Um, that's not the bad part yet. However, my thoracic surgeon, my lung surgeon, he told me that I could resume normal physical activities a month after surgery. So about 30 days after, I could get back to doing what I wanted to do. Good for me. Since it was snowboarding season and I had been deprived of my winter fun for a month, which I had been, I decided to go snowboarding with my brother and several friends the very first weekend I was cleared by my doctor. Now, common sense would tell you, man, that's a stupid idea. 
But I'm going to have to be honest with you, that thought did not cross my, my mind once. It, it didn't cross it. My mother and my grandmother, being godly and practical sources of counsel in my life, strongly suggested, hey, maybe you should wait a couple weeks. Maybe you should be wise about this until you fully regain your strength. Should have listened. But in my self-reliant, take-charge uh, mindset, I thought, no, I deserve a snowboard. I deserve my winter fun. It's been ruined already by one hospitalization. It's not going to be ruined by a second. I'm going to go. I know my own limits snowboarding. I know what jumps I shouldn't go off, what rails I shouldn't go off. I know what speed I can handle. I'm in control. I know what's going to happen. I can take matters in my own hands. I'm good to go. So with that mindset, I proceeded with my trip. Everything was going well for the first few hours. I was happy. Friends were happy. Brother was happy. And uh, so we started hitting bigger jumps as the day went on. And as the day went on, we got quite comfortable going off 15, 20-foot jumps. But as you can imagine, not all would end well, particularly for me. Apparently, I had contracted mono from my time in the hospital with my lung collapse and did not know it. Therefore, my spleen had become severely enlarged. Unaware of this, I just kept going off jumps uh, until one, at the end of the day, had my number, and I paid dearly for that. I fell from about 15 feet in the air, landed on my right shoulder and right side, and the impact of the fall literally split my spleen in half um, in my body. The doctors at York Hospital in Pennsylvania, they said if I had been on the slopes much longer, 15, 20 minutes, I honestly would have just bled to death because I lost a little over two liters of blood. Um, and so I'm telling you, friends, seek the Lord in all things, in all things, whether it is big or whether it is small. The Lord will guide you in the decisions that you are to make. He will always guide you along the right path if you lean on his wisdom and his understanding. We have God's words. We have godly people in our lives for a reason. Listen to biblical advice from scripture, from godly people in your lives. I should have. Or at least seek it out. Seek it out before taking matters into your own hands. Like I did, didn't turn out well. Like Jacob did, didn't turn out well for him. Like Esau, didn't turn out well for him either. Get the point, we're not in control. As much as you think you may be in sometimes, you're not. We're not in control. Things happen in this life that we don't expect all the time. We're not in control. Nor should we try to force desired outcomes to occur just because we think something should be or something should happen or that we are owed something. We should not take matters in our own hands try to force things to happen just because we think something should happen. God is faithful. He knows what you need, when you need it, and he will provide it in his own ways and in his own time. Not your time always, not my time. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. Trust that God is faithful. Rest in his wisdom, not your own. Find peace in his sovereignty. God always takes care of those whom he loves. And in this next section of our text, we're going to see just that. For we will see that the God whom we worship, whom we sing songs about, whom we read about, that same God is not far off. He is near and he is with us. Y'all still with me a little bit? So, a little few, I see a few head nods, a little bit. All right, good, 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 all right. Not too, too tired from last night, good. All right, well, this next section is titled, God is with us. God is with us. We're going to look at verses 10 through 22. Let's read these together. 
Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of those stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay it down for the place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. He said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. On which you, the land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will never leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob got up, took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, here in this second section of our text, we have three subparts. We've got the setup of the dream, we've got the dream, and we've got Jacob's response to the dream. Let's take a look, take a brief look at the setup of the dream. Verses 10 and 11 let us know that along Jacob's 550 mile journey toward Haran, Jacob stopped to rest. For the sun had gone down and night had caught up with him. Where exactly did he stop? Well, verses 10 and 11 don't tell us. They just say a certain place. But if you scroll down to verse 19, you will see that the name of the city where he must have been close to was Luz. And once again, Jacob stopped for the night, tired as you can imagine any fugitive would be. From walking and fleeing all day, he then lay down to sleep. And as he got ready to sleep, most likely feeling alone and vulnerable as any exile, any fugitive would feel and probably should feel. Jacob found a comfortable stone to use as a pillow, put it under his head. And as Jacob stopped at Luz, feeling tired, alone, vulnerable, our dream begins. Verse 12, if you're following along. And he, Jacob, dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. From the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, there were angels ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood well above it and said, I am the Lord, the God Almighty, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, Jacob, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you, Jacob, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. For behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. That sounds like a pretty good dream to me. Doesn't sound like a bad one at all. 
I, I can't honestly imagine necessarily what that would have been like. I had a pretty realistic dream about a week ago, uh, but I don't think this could compare to it whatsoever. To have a dream where God and angels appear to you, speak to you, give you amazing promises of security and significance, the very things that Jacob did not have as a fugitive on a long and difficult journey. And if this is not a picture of a gracious God to an undeserving sinner, I I really don't know what is. God is good. He is faithful to Jacob, even when Jacob is not faithful back. The imagery in this dream is pretty amazing, but you know what? It's also misunderstood. The latter imagery that Moses, the author of Genesis, presents to us here in this dream is one of a long staircase zigzagging up and down a ziggurat, which is a a stepped pyramid temple. Uh, If you could hit the slide, I've got a picture of it. That doesn't look like much of a ladder, does it? Not really. But that's the imagery of actually what's going on here. It's a ziggurat. The translation of ladder is not quite accurate. I know many Bible translations and... um, say it's a ladder, and many children's Bibles even have pictures of a ladder, but that's actually not what's really going on here. Um, That's not really the picture that's being presented here in Genesis 28, because the background of this imagery is actually contrasting Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. That's being contrasted here in this imagery. That tower went up into the same heavens in Genesis 11, and it was that tower which was a ziggurat. It was basically the same stepped staircase structure that we have here in our own text. The builders of the Tower of Babel, however, though, had a dual purpose for their ziggurat structure. Building the tower, they sought to find for themselves security and significance in there. But you know what? Neither one of these goals was achieved. And we know that because Genesis 11 tells us so. That God confused the people's language there and then scattered them across the earth. But what they did build was a house of confusion rather than a gateway to heaven. The ziggurat that they built was a place of worship like the place Jacob describes to us here in this dream. Jacob's encounter with God is in stark contrast to that of the building in Babel. Jacob had done nothing in his life to earn God's favor, to receive such comforting, good news, such magnificent dreams, such as one that he experienced quite the opposite. Jacob was a liar, he was a cheat, he was a schemer, and he was a deceiver. Not much different from the people building the tower at Babel. All Jacob was looking for was a place to lay his head and rest on his journey as a fugitive. Yet, he found something far greater than just a good night's sleep. For what the builders of Babel sought in vain, which was security and significance, that was graciously given to undeserving Jacob. Jacob was given the promise of security and significance in his dream. What was promised to Jacob in his dream was nothing short of the covenant of Abraham. Just as his father had sought in his blessing, so the Lord confirmed the Abrahamic blessing to Jacob. You know, ironically, all of this happened at the moment at which It must have seen that all was lost to Jacob. Fleeing from his brother, about to be murdered essentially. Feeling lost, feeling alone and vulnerable. On a journey, 500 and some miles away. Probably wasn't frequenting that journey as well himself, so it's probably new land. 
But when he thought all was lost, when it was evident that his scheming and all his lying, all his deceiving has misfired, and was on the run with no prospect of inheriting the promise, because obviously he wasn't there in Haran to inherit the blessing, necessarily. He, you know, he thought all was lost. How could he gain the blessing since he was there? It probably seemed like that. It was bad news for Jacob. All was lost. But God came to him at his lowest point in order that his goodness and grace could be clearly seen in contrast to Jacob's sin and deceit. All of God's grace and his unmerited and undeserving favor is on display for Jacob to see in a huge way. Cannot miss that. So as we've seen, indeed, it is a double misnomer to call the stairway towards heaven Jacob's ladder. For Jacob had no part in building it, nor did he traverse it. Rather, it was God's stairway, whereby he reaffirmed the constancy of his loving care and his presence for his chosen, but also rebellious child, Jacob. God is good. God is always with his people, like he was with Jacob. Always. And you know, I'd like to say that Jacob was blown away by God's grace and that right after he awoke from the dream and changed all of his ways on the spot, but it's not what happened. And these last few verses will tell us that. But what they do tell us is that Jacob was, in fact, very human like you and I. For we see that Jacob recognized that God was amazing, that he was wonderful, that God was powerful, and that God was with him. It's clear for him to see. He recognized that. But we also see that Jacob's faith was severely lacking. His self-reliant attitude was cropping back up once again. Just look at Jacob's response in verses 16 through 22. We're going to see his response there in those verses. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this here is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, poured oil on top of it, called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord should be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for the pillar, shall be God's house. And all of that that you give me, God, I will give back to you a tenth. So Jacob's response, being amazed, it starts off pretty good, right? Yeah, it does. He seems to be on the right track. Obviously, you can see where this is going. Jacob was genuinely blown away by God's awesomeness and his power and his majesty. And he recognized that God was here in this place, which he was. So far, so good. Jacob even went to the length of demonstrating this understanding by setting up the stone that he set up on the pillar, which he then poured oil on top of it as a sign of consecrating this spot for God. Jacob was claiming this location as God's house, for he called it Bethel. Bethel in Hebrew literally means the house of God. Appropriate name. It's a name fitting for this location. For, but it's also for in Mesopotamian cities that ziggurats often enjoined a temple, which was the house for their gods. 
So it's appropriate name. So to name this place Bethel, the house of God, where he saw this staircase that reached into the heavens, with, with God on top, angels ascending and descending, you can see is quite appropriate. Jacob seems to have grasped the common imagery that was being presented in this dream. If only the story had stopped there. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't. For after Jacob appropriately renames this location where he had the dream, he makes a vow. This is where it gets ugly. This is where we see the sinful part of Jacob basically come back. Jacob says, if God will be with me, then the Lord shall be my God. Notice the if-then statement. If God will be with me, which he clearly demonstrated he was, and God will provide for me, which he was, then the Lord shall be my God, and I will give back to him a tenth of all that he provides for me. So let me get this straight. Jacob is saying to God, if you, God, provide for me all that you promised me, then I will follow you and view you as my God because you have been good to me. And because you've been good to me, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to give you 10%, whatever you give me. He's not incredibly intelligent. Basically, Jacob is trying to bargain with God here. Let me tell you, this is ridiculous. He's trying to bargain with God. He had just had his mind blown by God's majesty and power and presence in this gateway to heaven with God's angels appearing to him, ascending and descending. And now he has the audacity to try to bargain with God. But that is only if God keeps his side of the bargain. This is clearly craziness. And that's, this is what happened. This story tells us. And I'm sure most of you, like myself, when you read this, like, man, what an idiot. What is he doing here? And you'd be right to think that, absolutely. But, you know, if you've heard uh, Dr. Dave's sermons, or if you've heard any of mine, you know that these biblical characters aren't the only ones with major flaws. You probably know what's coming next. We do the same thing, absolutely. Maybe not in the same ways, but we do them, whether it's in our motivations, actions, or thought process. We do the same. We are like Jacob. As much as we don't want to admit that, we are. It's a reality. We do what Jacob did all the time. Um, if you don't think that you do, probably lying to yourself. Maybe ask your wife, ask your children, or ask somebody at work. I might tell you the honest truth. But how often do you think in your head, if God would just give me a better job, I will start tithing more. Or if God would only grant me supernatural knowledge for this test, just then I would listen better in Sunday school. Or if God would just make me happy, then I'd go to church more. If God just did this, then I'd do more good things for whoever. Or something else along those lines, you, you can fill in the blank. But face it, we are like Jacob, as much as we don't want to admit it. God blesses us and provides for us, then we go back to him and say, if only we'd had this or that, then I'd do this for you, God. As if we could add something to God that he doesn't already have. It's true, we treat God like a cosmic vending machine, often, just like Jacob did. Let me tell you, my friends, that is not trusting God whatsoever. It's not trusting God with all your might, with all your heart, with all your soul. That is bargaining with God. And as we saw earlier, and as you see through all, all of the Bible, God is faithful. We don't need to bargain with him. 
And it's just what we saw in the dream. God is with us. He is near. Just like he was with Abraham, with Isaac, and now we're seeing Jacob. You want to know the truth? We, like Jacob, we don't deserve to be met with like Jacob was. To be met with comfort and security in our darkest hours like Jacob was on his journey. Because we lie, we cheat, we steal, we deceive, we scheme too. But you know what? God is still full of grace. He meets us where we are, no matter what. He meets us where we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up. He meets us where we are, just like he did for Jacob. God is faithful to each of us, even when we aren't faithful to him. For he sent his only son, Jesus, the son of God, to open the staircase to heaven. Because Jesus is the gateway. He is the gateway to heaven. Jesus is the staircase. Jesus is the way to God. He is the way to eternal life. He's at the, stop, he's at the top of the staircase waiting for us when we, when we reach the end of our lives. And he also came all the way down the staircase to earth in the form of a baby laying in a manger to give us his Holy Spirit to be with us here and now until we meet our deaths until we ascend back to the top. The God whom we sing songs about and read about in our Bibles, that God is faithful to you and to me. He knows what you need. He knows when you need it. And he knows how he's going to provide it. And it's going to be done in his own ways and in his own timing. Trust that God is faithful. Rest in his wisdom. Find peace in his sovereignty. For God always takes care of those whom he loves. I cannot say enough. God sent his only son to be with us. And you know what? We just celebrated that fact a week ago on Christmas Day. That the Savior has come. He has come. We don't have to take things in our hands because he freely takes those things from us. We don't have to be in control because God's in control. God is faithful. God is with us. He sent his son to us. God is near. That God came to be with us and he descended down the staircase in order to take our sins, to free us from the penalty of those sins, to give us freedom from having to sin, just to fill the voids in our own lives, just to feel full. He's come down to give us eternal security, to give our lives and our work significance, to give us joy in all circumstances, whether good and bad, to give us peace in the darkest hours of our lives, and to open the staircase to all who would trust in him and rest in his work that Jesus Christ did on the cross on Calvary. On the cross, Jesus Christ, he died so that we might have life and that we might have life to the fullest, to have life full of peace, full of joy, to have a life full of security and significance. And when Jesus rose victoriously from the grave, on the third day, he ascended into heaven where he waits for us to join him, friends. God is good, God is faithful, and God is with us. He truly is. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that you are faithful. We do thank you that you are good, you are holy and true. Father, even when we sin against you, even when we do things that we shouldn't do, we don't treat people the way we should treat them. You are faithful to us, Father. Father, you love us unconditionally. You offer your free grace to us, which we don't undeserve, but you offer it to us. You are faithful to us 
always, Father. You are near with us, Father. You are with us in every aspect of our lives. In small moments, the big moments, in the good times and the bad times, you are always with us. We thank you, Father, that you are good and true. We thank you, Father, that you are always with us. You will always continue to be with us, Father. 